Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Nicole O'Byrne, and I'm a legal historian at the Faculty of Law, University of New Brunswick, which is located on the unceded and unsurrendered land of the Willastaquick. Today, I'll be interviewing Julian Walker about his book, Wires Crossed, memoir of a citizen and reporter in the Irving Press. For 15 years, Julian Walker was an assistant professor in the journalism and communications program at St. Thomas University in Fredericton. His favorite course was free speech and the free press. He retired four years ago to devote himself to writing and publishing the Wires Crossed book that we will be talking about today. Julian holds degrees in politics from Trent University and the Lenin School of Economics and Political Science and a journalism degree from Carleton University. His extensive experience as a journalist and newspaper editor, Julian has also worked in government, serving as a deputy minister for 10 years in the departments of the environment, municipalities, culture and housing, and intergovernmental and Aboriginal affairs. He remains dedicated to restoring a freer press in New Brunswick and Canada. Julian, thanks so much for joining us on Witness to Yesterday. Thank you, Nicole. fascinating career as a journalist and civil servant. However, this book is much more ambitious in scope than just a personal reflection. What compelled you to write, as suggested in your subtitle, a memoir of a citizen and reporter in the Irving Press? Well, having worked as a reporter and columnist in the Irving Press, and as well had a taste of independent journalism with the St. Croix Courier, I concluded it was very unhealthy of the Irvings to own almost all the newspapers in New Brunswick at the same time as they own most of the very large industry in the province as well. That was my angle, the main argument. That was where I thought by highlighting the media monopoly, I could help bring about the most positive change in our province. You examine the history of press ownership in New Brunswick. Can you briefly outline the media context in the province in the late 19th and early 20th centuries before the Irving family started investing in print media? In those early days, New Brunswick uh, press ownership was a bit of a riot, really. Uh, There were uh, 40 weeklies operating in the province, and there was a very juicy uh, railway scandal in the early uh, 20th century. The 40 weeklies all agreed that the then premier, uh, Kid Fleming, should resign because he had compelled a railway contractor to contribute to the Conservative Party in exchange for government business. In those days, newspaper editors weren't afraid to call a spade a spade. Yet the political scene was very unstable. And over a period of about 30 years, there were eight New Brunswick premiers. There was no strict dividing line between politics and journalism. In fact, many journalists went on to enter politics. 
something I escaped myself, although I did work in politics. Overall, you could say it was the Wild East. When and why did Casey Irving decide to start buying newspapers? And what role has the Irving family played in the New Brunswick media landscape? Casey Irving bought his first daily newspaper, The Telegraph Journal, in 1946. And he quickly added three other New Brunswick dailies to his collection. Casey treated the final English daily in the province, the Freighton Daily Gleaner, as a special case, apparently because he knew the completion of his newspaper monopoly was going to be much more controversial. And indeed it was eventually. Although he took controlling ownership of the Gleaner in 1957, this was kept secret until 1969. In recent years, the rise of social media has taken a heavy toll on newspaper revenues. But in 1969, newspapers were still seen as a, a rewarding investment. Casey told the Davy Commission, the first national inquiry on the Canadian media, I deal in all good commodities, and I put the newspaper business in that same category. Another feature, uh, as probably you know well, of Casey's business approach was he liked to control the landscape and see his investments pay off over the long term. One of the most interesting chapters in the book is about Premier Louis Robichaud's ambitious program of equal opportunity and the resistance his government met from the Irving-controlled newspapers during the 1960s. Can you explain the controversy and the roles played by Brigadier Michael Wardell and William Worthman, the editorial cartoonist? Well, let's start with equal opportunity and the premiers, the new premiers approach. And I would say he had a Robin Hood style, which was taking from the rich and giving it to the poor. For instance, it brought about a more equitable distribution of funds in, in education between the wealthier English counties in the south and the poorer French counties in the north. Casey Irving said he accepted the equity aspect, but he took very strong exception to the threatened removal of special tax concessions for his large Irving industries. The Fredericton Cleaner under perceived owner Michael Wardell, led the charge against E.O. before it was publicly revealed that Irving was, in fact, the owner of the paper. At one point, Wardell called for citizens to fight to the death over E.O. in an anticipated provincial election. The newspaper's cartoonist, William Worthman, drew very strong cartoons, such as one depicting Premier Richard Premier uh, Robichaud in a French Revolution-style guillotine about to pull the string to cut off his own head. The EO fight came to a head, so to speak, over the Premier's determination to open more mining and pulp and paper development in the northern part of the province, thwarting control by KC. The Premier stuck his foot in the door and called the 1963 Who Runs New Brunswick election. This pitted an elected government against the powerful industrialists represented by the Conservatives in that election. 
the governing Liberals won re-election by only a slightly increased margin, showing the continuing, continuing importance of KC for many New Brunswickers, even to this day. KC soon appeared personally before a legislature committee arguing that no sane person is going to agree with the Robuchet government's method, method, I stress, of achieving greater equity. Nevertheless, over the objections of Casey and the Gleaner, the government stuck to its guns and completed implementation of EO by 1987. Shortly before that 1987 date, the feisty premier had stated, we had the guts to face the new challenges. We had the worst press in Canada, but do you know why? There have been a number of studies that have examined the issue of media concentration in New Brunswick. Can you tell us about the findings of the Royal Commission on Newspapers, chaired by Tom Kent, and the Senate Standing Committee on Transport and Communications, chaired by Lise Bacon? In your opinion, have these concerns been adequately addressed? Well, Let's start with the Kent Commission. The, the biggest thing for New Brunswick that Kent uh, recommended uh, was that the uh, Irvings should sell uh, one of each of the dailies they owned in two cities. That would be St. John and Moncton. But before the Kent punch could be delivered, the Irvings shut down the Evening Times Globe in St. John and the transcript in Moncton. This aspect of the Commission's general concern about concentration of ownership in the magic media, media really had little consequence. As for the Bacon Commission, it said it couldn't find anywhere in the developed world a situation comparable to New Brunswick, where the Irvings had monopoly ownership of the media at the same time as major industrial holdings. This statement did indeed cause a stir, but did not bring about significant corrective action. Sadly, little changed because of these two studies. The one notable exception uh, came following the first national media study, the Davy Commission. This resulted in the CRTC obliging the Irvings to sell the St. John CHSJ broadcast media, clearing the way for increased CBC television and radio service in the province. This had an enormous impact. You worked as a reporter for the Irving Press. What were some of the challenges you faced? Well, I was a Telegraph Journal legislature reporter in Fredericton. I was appalled that this flagship paper of the Irving Press sat quietly and did not break news stories about the biggest political scandal of the 1970s. Small media with shoestring budgets, budgets managed to break news as people were coming out of the woodwork to tell their stories about kickbacks. Those are kickbacks being paid to the governing Conservatives at the time. The TJ, and regretfully I include myself in this, simply reported on the furor in the legislature, but did nothing more. 
Later, when I was editor of the St. Croix Courier, I testified before the Kent Commission that I and other Irving reporters were embarrassed about the lack of tough journalism coming from the Irving press with what I described as a recording secretary approach to its job. In 1977, just to move to another example, I covered the aftermath of, of the uh, very serious disaster uh, in St. John, the 1977 city lockup fire where 21 men died. I then reported on the trial of, of the inmate who was soon found guilty of manslaughter in the deaths and the sub subsequent very tame inquest. There were many unanswered questions about this fire, which began in the lockup's padded cell. How was the man who was convicted able to start this fire after being searched several times for matches? Why was there not a second set of keys when the keys were lost in the smoke? Why was there no second exit from the facility? And why, for goodness sake, was flammable foam used in the padded cell? I agitated with the newspaper for a strong response on this awful event. The article I wrote was trimmed back to being a, in my opinion, piece, rather than a strong message from the paper itself. I was disappointed with the newspaper's cautious approach, and shortly after this, I decided to leave the Telegraph Journal and landed a job with the Ottawa Journal in a competitive daily newspaper environment. You were the editor of one of New Brunswick's only independently owned newspapers, the St. Croix Courier. Can you give us an example of why it's important to have an independent press? In the early 1980s, uh, my deputy editor and I, uh, Anne Bro, wrote a series of investigative stories about the Point Le Pro nuclear plant, which was then under construction. The first of these stories was that there were cracks in the reactor building, enclosing the heart of any nuclear generating station. The building was not sound and could leak. In other words, leak radiation. As a result of our reporting, the Atomic Energy Control Board regulators ruled that an epoxy sealant had to be applied to the entire inside of the massive reactor building to keep the public safe. As reporters for this small paper, we saw our stories as like the famous movie starring Peter Sellers entitled, The Mouse That Roared. <laughs> the gist of that being that a small entity can push and change the world. In the conclusion, you quote the American journalist and author Robert Carroll. There is no one truth, no objective truth, no single truth, but there are facts, hard facts, objective facts, verifiable facts. And the more facts you come up with, the closer you come to whatever truth there is. 
And then you claim that the wires crossed relationship between a media monopoly and a strong industrial sector has left the press in New Brunswick in a mess. Could you explain the significance of the Carroll quote and expand on your claim that wires have been crossed in the New Brunswick media landscape? I believe that Carroll is saying in that quote that truth in journalism is vital, but it is not as simple as saying something like, the earth isn't flat. Good journalists have to work their way toward the truth by gathering fact after fact, even though they may never arrive at perfect truth. But mixing media ownership with industrial ownership gets in the way of truth-seeking. And as I, as I noted in your question, results in a mess. As one thoughtful observer described it, the Irvings in owning both were, and this was Aaron Steuter who said this, the Irvings in owning both were reporting on themselves. At the end of the book, you offer some solutions to the problems faced by the media in New Brunswick and elsewhere. Why is the story of media concentration in New Brunswick relevant to current dilemmas facing print media throughout the world? And what are some of the approaches that may address some of the problems that you raised in the book? We have to keep in mind that shortly after my book came out, the Irvings, in fact, sold off all their newspapers to another media conglomerate, Post Media. I know my book didn't cause this to happen, but I hope that Wires Cross contribute in some way to the cause of free speech and the, and the free press. I believe that concentrated ownership remains a major problem for all media, not just print media. Look at very rich people like Elon Musk trying to control free speech for a huge part of the globe. Or... Fox News, part of a giant world media empire that has little, if any, dedication to the truth. As for the New Brunswick media scene, concentrated ownership still applies with the post-media ownership of almost all the newspapers. The battle isn't over. We still have to fight for quality journalism at all levels, all levels. independence, Diversity, bravery, and truth-seeking in journalism remains as important as ever. Julian, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Nicole. guest today has been Julian Walker. He is the author of Wires Crossed, Memoir of a Citizen and Reporter in the Irving Press, published by Friesen Press in 2021. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca, where you can learn more about the Champlain Society. Please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We always appreciate likes and shares on social media. 
This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We would like to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Nicole O'Byrne. This interview was recorded on May 2nd, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team.